from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Before I read the scriptures, let me welcome all the children who are worshiping uh, with us this morning. We're so thankful that you're here. You make our worship better. I hope you've already picked up one of the worship bags that helps you stay engaged with the themes of our time together. And again, you make our worship uh, so very good, and we're thankful that you're here with us this morning. Our first lesson comes from the book of Proverbs, the 16th chapter, verses 16 through 19, page 565 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Hear God's word to you and to me. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright avoids evil. Those who guard their way preserve their lives. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit among the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. And turning to the New Testament, page 226, 1 John the fourth chapter, verses 7 to 21. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. The writer says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent the son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God lives in us, and God's love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in God, and God abides in us, because God has given us the Holy Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as God is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because God first loved us. 
Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters, they're liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from God is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we ask now that you'd break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We launched, launched a sermon series uh, last week, and at the heart of this series, we're exploring this single question, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a human being? Last week, I suggested that if we are going to make our way in responding to such a question, if we are going to have an inquiry into what this question actually means, then we must start by remembering that human beings are made, are created in the image of God. That the human being, first and foremost, is made in the image of God, which is another way of saying that we are related to God and that God loves us. We also said last week that God has endowed the human being with certain characteristics and certain traits, certain qualities that give us, by grace, the ability to reflect in a small way, in a small measure, give us the ability to reflect who God is in the fullness of time. That human beings have the capacity to reflect the very essence of God for who God is in the fullness of eternity. And part of that endowment, we started to hone in, part of that endowment, part of what God has given us uh, is the capacity to desire. God has given human beings a will. God has etched in our hearts and in our minds and in our guts this capacity to want, the capacity to long. And by God's grace, we reflected last week, by God's grace, we are able to desire what God desires. That human desire, taking the, the title of this sermon series, that human desire can reflect divine intention. That's what we're confessing in this series, that, that human desire can meet the desires of God, that can have integration, can reflect on what God once for God's people and for God's world. But we also said, we came to this crossroad in the sermon last week, we said that, that even though we have these pure desires, even though we have these noble desires to desire, to want, that those desires can be badly malformed. We talked about how those desires can become distorted by fear and by shame and by anger. And when our desires get out of whack, when our desires are malformed as human beings, when our desires become distorted, to quote what I said last week, bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens in our lives. Bad stuff happens in the life 
of the world, when our desires get out of whack, when they become distorted, bad things happen. So we need an intervention. We need God to intercede. We need Christ to speak into our lives in a fresh way to reform and to reshape our desires, to reform and to reshape our longings so we may know what it really means to be a human being the way God created us and so that we would be aligned, that our desires would be aligned with God's intention. So that's where we were last week, and this week now we get into it. We're going to be looking at nine principal desires that the human being possesses. And today we start with this one, that the human being possesses a desire to be loved. Human beings possess the longing to be loved. I think we know this instinctively. I do not believe I need to make a case for it now. I think this is something we know, something that we intuit in the very depths of who we are. One of my favorite places to people watch is at Arrivals Hall at the Atlanta Jackson, the Hartsfield Jackson Atlanta Airport. I love to people watch there. A couple weeks ago, I was picking up Katie after she was away from a conference and I got there a little bit early. And so I started to people watch. And I saw a woman come up the escalator. She looked uh, as if she just was coming home from a study abroad. She had her backpack and her sandals. Her hair was disheveled. She looked like she had the time of her life. And then she saw her parents and she rushed toward them and they rushed toward her and they embraced and she cried. And her father said, welcome home. We've missed you. And then I saw uh, two young lovers meet eyes as the one came up and and the other was holding flowers and went to give uh, the other the flowers and, and she sort of knocked them away and just wrapped him up in a hug and they shared in that embrace right in the middle of Arrivals Hall as people were coming and going as if the world did not exist around them. And then I saw a grandmother come up and I saw the most excited child rush toward that woman, be swept up in her arms, and then incessantly and annoyingly kissed under his chin. (laughs) And as I watch this unfold, and maybe you're like me, when you watch love unfold, you start to feel those feelings too. You start to feel those desires. And I was keenly aware of my own desire to share in that love. And I longed to see Katie even more than when I had first arrived at the airport. And when that time came for us to embrace, I gave thanks to God for the ways in which the desire to be loved is met in my life and met in so many others' lives in the life of the world. From sociology to theology to psychology, the conclusion is the same. Doesn't matter the discipline. The conclusion drawn is the same. Human beings possess a longing to be loved. Even so, this noble desire, this pure desire that we have, can in fact become distorted 
I know that there are many within the sound of my voice even now who stand on the ground of self-worth and they begin to fear that there's a fault line running underneath. Something to make their worth unsteady, unsure. It really is a fault line of fear. And in the simplest of terms, we can name it as this. It's a fear that I am unlovable. It's a fear that I am unworthy of love. I have this deep desire to be loved, and yet I have this fault line of fear running under the ground on which I stand, and I begin to question my own worth. And I begin to think, if I am to be loved, I have to prove myself. If I'm going to be loved, I have to earn it. If I'm going to be loved, I actually have to neglect my own needs. I have to bury my own emotions. I don't even know what I feel because I can't deal with those because I have to prove myself worthy by meeting the emotions of other people. I have to be unselfish even at the risk of my own destruction. If I want to be loved, I have to be there for other people. I just can't say no. I need to be needed because I need to prove myself lovable. And let me be clear, of course, helping others, serving others, being caring and compassionate with others, these are not bad things. Being a caring and an emotionally present and generous person is certainly something excellent for which to be known. But, but if our helping, if our service, if our generosity, if our compassion is born out of a fear that we are not worthy of love, stuff begins to happen in our psyche, starts to happen in our heart, starts to happen in our spiritual life, and it's not good. Insecurity can creep in. Codependency can creep in. Manipulation and resentment and self-deception. We may even find ourselves in relationships that are toxic because we just keep wanting to prove ourselves that we're lovable even at our own detriment, even when it causes us pain. And all of this, this once pure desire can become distorted and ultimately it can lead to the besetting sin of pride. The people who have this longing to be loved, whose longing becomes distorted, can fall into the besetting sin of pride. And in the end, in the end, destruction comes when we fall into those places. Destruction of all kinds, spiritual, psychological, emotional. Destruction comes. And guess what? We're left with the very same dread we possessed when we started, the fear that we are unlovable. Now, I'll be getting to our scripture text in just a moment, but first I want to share an illustration of how this all works, of, of how uh, this noble desire can become so badly distorted. 
How our desire to be loved can be so badly malformed that it brings destruction into our lives. Many of you are familiar with the author Shel Silverstein and his wonderful collection of children's books. One of my favorite books of all time is The Giving Tree. I've always loved that book, even from the time my mother used to read it to me. And I used to think that The Giving Tree really only had one point. As you get older, right, you begin to understand that stories can take on multiple meanings at different times in your life. But back then, I thought it had one particular meaning. I thought the giving tree was exclusively about sacrificial love. And I thought it was about promoting a morality of selflessness. That's what I thought was there. That's what I thought the story was all about. And perhaps that's what Silverstein intended to communicate. But as I've gotten older and I've started to explore some of the themes that we're exploring in this sermon series, I begin to realize that my interpretation is expanding a little bit and perhaps there is another point of view, one that maybe Silverstein even intended for us to receive as somewhat of a warning. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, it begins by talking about a tree who loved a little boy and a little boy who loved a tree. And the boy would visit the tree and play with the tree and swing in its branches and climb up and, and gather leaves. And, and the boy would eat the trees, uh, eat the apples rather, from the tree. And, and the boy would fall asleep against the trunk of the tree. The boy spent every day with the tree. But as the boy got older, the frequency of visits started to diminish. And after a long time away, the boy comes to visit and the tree invites him to play. But the boy says, I'm a young man now and I have no time to play. I need money. So the tree tells the boy to take her apples and to go sell them in the market, which the boy does. As an aside, the boy never once, not once in this story, ever says Thank you. Never, not once, is the boy grateful for what the tree gives. Keep that in mind. Even so, we're told that the tree is happy. More time passes. The boy comes around again, this time uh, letting the tree know that I need a house. And so the tree says, you can cut down my branches and you can use them to build a house. And that's what the boy does. And the writer says, the tree was happy. More time passes. And after a while, the, the boy comes back. He's now a much older man. I think he's going through a midlife crisis because all he wants to do is get away. And the tree says, well, you can cut down my trunk and you can make a boat and you can sail off. And that's what the boy does. And this time, Silverstein says, the tree was happy, but not really. The boy returns one last time, now close to death, and the tree really has nothing left to give. And the boy asks for a quiet place to sit and to rest. And so the tree offers her stump. And the story closes with, the tree was happy. Now, please be assured, I'm not trying to ruin anyone's uh, childlike fondness for this story. You can hold whatever interpretation you want to hold about this story. But in recent days, I have come to see the relationship between the boy and this tree as super dysfunctional. 
In the tree's quest for the boy's love, she gives everything of herself in a transactional way. And the boy, as I said earlier, is nowhere near grateful. And perhaps the tree is happy. Perhaps the tree is happy because she is doing what she thinks she needs to do to earn the boy's love. Because the boy never gives the tree anything. The boy doesn't love the tree. I find that opening line to be so ironic. Maybe the boy at one time did love the tree, but by the end of the story, it is so very sad because the boy has not expressed love for the tree. What is more, and this is now conjecture, I'm sort of applying my own interpretive lens here about something that may not be true in this story, but I think is true to life. When we try to earn love, when we try to prove ourselves to be loving, by, lovable rather, by giving everything away, that's when pride can set in. And you may think, how in the world does pride set in when this desire becomes distorted? Well, think of the book of Proverbs, right? Pride comes before destruction. Pride comes before destruction. Could it have been possible that the tree was proud at the beginning of the story to think that she had everything the boy could ever want and ever need. Motivated by her need to be needed by the boy, could she have been proud in her assumption that I have what this boy needs? In fact, I have what this boy needs better than anybody else. I know what this boy needs better than anybody else. And, and you begin to, the tree begins to play a bit of a, the, the martyr. Do you know people like this? Are you like this? Where you say to yourself, I know exactly what they need better than they know what they need. And pride sets in. And I think pride is the operating motive at the very beginning of this story. Because what happens at the end of the story? Destruction. Destruction. There's no loving relationship, there's codependency. Pride comes before destruction. Isn't it intriguing, right? Follow me here. It's intriguing that we want to be loved. It's a pure, etched on our hearts, minds, and guts desire. It's what it means to be human. But it's distorted by the fear that we are unlovable. So we try to prove ourselves worthy of love. And so we give ourselves away. We serve others. We put others first. And what happens is pride begins to set in as we think we're the only one to give the world what it really needs. And in the end, we don't have what we need. We don't even know what we need. In the end, we have found ourselves maybe even in relationships like this tree where we've been mistreated. And we certainly don't have love. But I'll tell you what we do have. Resentment bitterness and anger. And we still have the same fear. I am not lovable. So it's here that we need an intervention. It's here that I think we need a word from God. And that word today comes from 1 John. The noble desire to be loved can be distorted by fear. Make no mistake. But in the face of that reality, the writer of 1 John says this, perfect love casts out all fear. 
Perfect love casts out all fear. In other words, perfect love casts out the fear that we are unlovable. Perfect love casts out the fear that unless we prove ourselves, we will never find love, we will never be love. And what is the perfect love the writer is referring to? It's expressed poetically in these words. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent God's son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you don't remember anything else from this sermon, remember this. In God's love, there is no quid pro quo. In God's love, there is no expected reciprocity. There is no tit for tat. God's love comes to us in the full, in and as the person of Jesus Christ. Because God is love. Not because of what we've earned, not because of what we have done, not even on our way to prove that we are lovable. God's love isn't a response to our work. God's love isn't a response to our efforts. God's love isn't a response even to our love of God. God loves us first, which makes us realize that every effort we make in trying to prove our worth really is wasted work. Let me say that again. Every effort that we make in trying to prove that we're lovable is wasted work, and it only leads to destruction. Last night, Katie gathered our family around for our evening time of devotions, and she's reading a book by a woman named Shauna Nyquist. Uh, It's called Present Over Perfect. I love that title. Present Over Perfect. And in it, she says this, it's all about rejecting the myth that every day is a new opportunity to prove our worth. And it's about the truth that our worth is inherent, given by God, not earned by our hustling. Oh, all you hustlers out there, pay attention. It is not earned by our hustling. It's about learning to show up and letting ourselves be seen just as we are, massively imperfect, weak and wild, and flawed in a thousand ways, but still worth loving. Friends, the gift of God's grace is that we are loved, and it is that unconditional, irrevocable, and undying love that becomes the genuine source of how we love ourselves and love others, how we show up in the world. Because when our desire to be loved is intercepted by God's desire to love us, we recognize that we don't have to hustle anymore that we don't have to prove ourselves worthy, but that God's love is sufficient. When our desire to be loved is intercepted by God's intention to love us, we can acknowledge our limitations, we can acknowledge our imperfections, and know that none of it, to quote Romans 8, none of it will ever separate us from the love of God. Friends, perfect love casts out fear. You are lovable. And you are loved. So be liberated from fear and love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. 
for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may it be. Amen. Yeah.